welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. This is the second part of our two-part interview with James Chen, Vice President of Public Policy at Rivian. You know, there were some efforts for automakers. I believe it was, was it GM through Saturn or or something else where they, they wanted to, they, they tried to get direct sales going, I think in the 90s. Uh, I'm sure you have better history on this. And they were blocked. So there's a sort of a case too of, of legacy automakers being upset that they can't do this while, um, you know, companies like Tesla, Rivian can, uh, because then that sort of, you know, they have it. I mean, I think the number one challenge automakers that are serious about EVs now are facing in the U.S. is how to get dealers on board and how to how to you know convince customers to switch. But heard that from insiders who are again jumped from Tesla to other OEMs, legacy OEMs, and this is their big challenge. How do we how do we get through this barrier? So they might you know feel like it's a bit unfair. So could you speak a little bit about that history and and um, what you know about that? Yeah, sure. So, so uh, it was Ford that tried this in Texas back in the '90s to to open up their own stores. And I'm not going to speak to Ford's experience. Uh, it it didn't work for Ford. Not sure why. Didn't really dig into it a whole lot. But I will tell you that uh, with respect to uh, the manufacturers that want to do this, frankly, my own view, and and this is a bill we actually did run in Colorado. The bill that we originally ran in Colorado was to allow any manufacturer producing EVs to sell those EVs directly. And that would have included uh, the likes of Ford, GM, uh, Honda, Toyota, Volkswagen, any of any of the quote unquote legacy automakers to be able to do this. We uh, eventually had to reach a compromise with the Colorado Auto Dealers Association where we limited it to manufacturers of electric vehicles only. That is those devoted 100% to electric vehicles. But uh, I think I think that kind of explains the, the the position. But I want to make sure I answered your questions. Zach. That's cool. I I'm I thought it was GM, but he, I'm sure you're correct. It was Ford. Uh, so I know we, we talked about this a little bit, but you know one of the big arguments against this switch is that uh, you need dealers for consumer protection. <laughs> I can't even get through the case. <laughs> Such a ridiculous. Uh, you know, the argument is that dealers somehow protect consumers, don't rip them off. Could, I don't know. Could you just talk a little bit about that theory, that idea? How much is that really used and important in the legal debates? And of course, why that's uh, hard to get hard to get out without laughing. 
Yeah, I, I, I hear you. Listen, there are good dealers out there. There are dealers that look out for their customers. But as far as providing that safety net, it's not the dealers that provide the safety net. It's federal and state laws. It's the lemon laws that apply to any manufacturer where vehicles are present in the state. So even in certain closed states like New York, like Pennsylvania, where we're not allowed to sell directly, even though, uh, let's be clear, New York and Pennsylvanians will be able to buy a Rivian, they will go online to one of our licensed locations. uh, And they will do this as an out-of-state sale, and we will ship that vehicle to them. And because that vehicle's entered into that state, state lemon laws will apply to Rivian. So if there's a problem and there's a lemon, we we will be subject to those same consumer protection laws even before we get to that level, because lemon laws, you know, you get three shots, three or four shots to fix a vehicle uh, if it has a recurring problem. Even before we get to that level, state warranty law, federal warranty law, uh, provide minimum protections for consumers that apply to all manufacturers, no matter where the car is sold from. Uh, There are those protections in place. And, and dealers like to use the argument, well, if the, if the manufacturer, and they did this a lot with Tesla, by the way, in the early days where they said, well, you know, we don't know, Tesla's a startup, they may go bankrupt, they may go under, who's going to look out for them? Well, the dealers will look out for them. But that, that, that's a false flag as well. And we can point to historic examples, who really protected the consumers in those cases. So if we look back to back in the 80s, there was a startup manufacturer called DeLorean. And DeLorean did go bankrupt, but it wasn't DeLorean dealers that continued to provide that uh, protection for the consumers. It was the bankruptcy court. It was the bankruptcy court that basically set aside a pool of money and required those dealers to be able to service DeLoreans for a certain amount of time. How do I know that? My father owned a DeLorean. He had a 1982 DeLorean. So I got to see this firsthand. That That was the funny part. The other example that dealers sometimes point to is when Oldsmobile and Saturn, because you had mentioned Saturn, had gone under, it was the dealers there. Actually, no, it wasn't. And, and by the way, those were brands. Those weren't, those weren't manufacturers. And guess who stepped up and protected those customers of Oldsmobile and Saturn and Pontiac vehicles? It was the manufacturer. It was GM who basically said, okay, well, you know, these Chevy dealers are now authorized to service your Oldsmobile, and that's where you'll take them. How do I know that? We owned an Oldsmobile minivan. So I went through and when our minivan needed service and my wife had to take it in, we called the manufacturer who said, go to this authorized uh, GM dealer who happens to sell GMCs and, and uh, Chevys to get your van service. So again, it's, it's, it's a false flag. At the end of the day, it's a combination of the courts, um, state laws, federal laws that are ultimately providing the protection to the consumer. I don't want to get too far off topic, but I mean, that you, you worked several years at Tesla. Your dad had a 1982 DeLorean. I just have to hear a little bit more. What, what, is, what got you into auto, the auto sector? What, did you have a special childhood exploring fun vehicles and just uh, uh, what, what got you into this whole thing, this whole business oh, and I, attraction just, to? Uh, yeah, at, at the heart of it, I'm a car guy. I just, I love cars. I love tinkering with them. Um, I used to uh, take apart cars uh, all the time. This was pre-OBD2, by the way. So like I had, I had a 94 Chevy Camaro that was OBD1 and I could actually fool around with it. I still to this day like to do um, maintenance on the vehicles that I have that are not electric. So it's just being a car guy. And I started out my career as an environmental lawyer with the EPA Office of Enforcement, uh, prosecuting environmental crimes in the hazardous waste area. Eventually headed over to a law firm 
And this law firm I found out was basically the U.S. counsel for a, an overseas manufacturer out of Europe. And being a car guy that I am, I asked the lead partner, hey, could I work on some of these issues? Uh, and he had me a project to do. And I knew nothing about auto safety laws back in my baby lawyer days. But I had a really good friend who happened to be senior counsel at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And I asked him, uh, I said, look, you don't have to give me the answer, but tell me where to look in the law. Because, you know, I figured I'm a, a competent lawyer, at least I like to think, uh, and I can, I can figure this out. So he pointed me in the right direction, gave it back to the senior partner. He was impressed that this environmental law lawyer could pick up automotive stuff and <laughs> launched it from there. And so I, again, you know, worked almost 20 years for the legacy automakers as outside counsel for various brands and then various manufacturers and found this little company that, that needed help on things like EPA, CAFE, uh, GHG stuff called Tesla that was using, you know, what we'll characterize as laptop batteries to be able to make an exciting electric car. Uh, met those guys and, and uh, just it all kind of snowballed from there. So yeah, yeah. The, I'm a car guy. It's always fun to talk a bit about to the people who were at Tesla early because you all have fun stories. <laughs> you all have deep histories and fun stories. So one more uh, topic on the other automakers. I'm just curious, how much do you think the industry will end up shifting to direct sales? I know you can't go too far out on a limb here, but do you think this is the future? Do you think we're sort of, we will more and more shift to direct sales and specific model, you know, customized model ordering like Europe has more? Or do you think we'll just navigate in the current system and, you know, find a way to make it all fit together, but more or less keep this the current auto sales system the US has? Zach, that's a great question. And I'll respond by saying it's not an either or situation. Direct sales is coming. I think direct sales will eventually get here. And it'll be offered, maybe call me an optimist, overly optimistic, but I think it'll be offered in all 50 states like it is around the rest of the world. But that doesn't mean, and it's not binary, it doesn't mean that dealers will go away. It doesn't mean that franchise dealers will become obsolete. I think there's a real opportunity here for franchise dealers to look at their business model and evolve. They don't have to be the buggy whip manufacturers of the 1900s or the blacksmiths of the 1900s. They can look at the business model and figure out how to evolve. I'll give you a great example. Cox Automotive, who is, by the way, one of our investors, I have to throw that out there, as well as running Mannheim Auto Auctions and, and a number of Kelly Blue Book, a number of uh, automotive uh, industries. They, not too long ago, recognized that there was this shift happening in the industry and a traditional company like Cox Automotive said, we've got to look at our business model. We have to shift that business model. So they did create something called Pivot. And I got to see a Pivot uh, Center in Atlanta, which was really eye-opening, thanks to Commissioner Tim Eccles, who's a huge EV proponent, uh, Commissioner of, of Energy down there. And what I saw was really cool because you had what used to be a Manheim, Manheim auto auction site. And on one side, there was a building where uh, it was all about shared mobility. They Lyft had uh, rented out some space where they were interviewing potential Lyft drivers and, and drivers were coming in to, to do applications and where they could also lease vehicles. Another side of it had a whole bunch of charges going in for electric vehicles. Another section of the lot had a, a service area where folks could get electric vehicle service. So Cox got it. 
and created Pivot, recognizing that they were capitalizing on electrification, on shared mobility, on connectivity, all in one single center. And I think the franchise dealers have an opportunity here to be able to shift their business model and look what look how they could fit into the 21st century and how their business model doesn't have to be mired in the traditions of the past. And as a result, evolving that business model to be to remain relevant. So looking into the future, I think direct sales is coming. It doesn't mean that the franchise dealers have to be obsolete. It means they have an opportunity, whether it's you know five years, 10 years, 15 years, to be able to shift their business model not only remain relevant, but really provide that value to the consumer that they claim that they have. Yeah, they don't have to be hated and feared, right? Yeah, and, exactly. and I, I know Carvana was, I think people thought it wasn't going to last for several years. I see a lot of Carvana ads and I see a lot of frames Carvana around license plates. You know, um, it seems to be doing very well. And again, it's, you know, it's just shifting to a different buying model. I've got our, some of our best friends are Chinese Canadians live here in florida <laughs> so chinese canadian floridians and uh i mean the the does, yeah the the buying the system of buying stuff the the how much more is is through uh advanced buying and and internet-based stuff you know is is mind-boggling you hear about china just is like feels like it's a, in a sci-fi world when you hear about how things happen there uh so at the least you know the u.s is going to evolve into more and more you know, of this kind of streamlined internet-based uh, consumerism. But just with regards to automakers, do you think more legacy, do you think legacy automakers across the board are generally going to get the opportunity to buy, to sell more directly? Or do you think it's just a matter of the right dealer partnerships, dealer systems? So you, it might seem like you're buying from, for example, Volkswagen.com, but it's going through a dealer who's, who's like you said, like, um, you know, realized the direction the world is headed in and, and sort of found a way to evolve and, and partner with the automakers in the right way. Yeah, I, frankly, I think it can be an all of the above. And, and it's interesting you mentioned Canada because I mentioned Russia and China earlier. Let, let's look at, you know, a closer uh, example, Canada. Canada does allow manufacturers across the, the, the country to sell directly and they also allow franchises. And guess what? They coexist. They're, both of those business models work in Canada, one has not driven out the other. And so I think in an answer to your question, Zach, I think it's all of the above. I think you will have um, manufacturers that want to sell direct and are able to sell direct in some locations. I think you'll have manufacturers that also want to use franchise dealers and will continue to do so if those franchise dealers evolve and if they learn that this is not an all or none proposition. Cool. So just two more questions. One, so right now, what is most needed to sort of advance legislation, to to open up the United States to the idea of a free market, a free economy, to bring free market economics to Texas and places like what's the most what are the most important things needed right now to sort of push this forward in the in the U.S. and like specific states or or just in general? Yeah, I think uh, as this battle is continuing in states like Washington, New York, Pennsylvania, Georgia, I think awareness of the consumer. A lot of consumers aren't aware that when they go to a Toyota dealer, a Ford dealer, that they're actually talking to someone who is not the manufacturer. Recognizing uh, that you know consumer choice is the right direction, is the right path to go, 
There was recently a, a coalition, a letter signed by uh, a number of academics as well as different interest groups. Uh, and, and the academics were economists, they were professors, um, all in support of the direct sales option. And again, these guys weren't saying that franchise dealers should go away. They were saying we should open up the market. And then the coalition of other interested parties included you know, environmentalists, included free market proponents, conservative think tanks. I mean, you had the whole gamut of folks across the political spectrum agreeing that at the end of the day, consumer choice was the right way to go. So what's really needed? More of this. And, and what I'm heartened about having been in these battles since the early 2010s is that more and more folks are coming to realize that this antiquated system of locking out uh, consumer choice, of locking out manufacturers, being able to use different distribution channels does exist. Uh, and that these are artifacts of laws that were while well-intentioned back in the day, has swung the other way and really need, uh, really are impediments to innovation and uh, markets and consumer choice. Yeah, it seems like also champions like Tim Eccles, you mentioned, uh, people like that probably have, can go a long way. We, he actually contributed a guest article a month or so ago for us. He reached out because he was really trying to get in front of Joe Biden for the SK Innovation LG Energy Solution controversy that was going on regarding the battery. Yeah, so he, he he's a very good activist. It seems like he must have a lot of influence on the state level because he's so involved would you say that you sort of need champions like that at on at different states to kind of really help push things along or or is it mostly just you know it's got to be grassroots consumer driven i think it has to be all of the above i think we absolutely need champions and and by the way i applaud the 12 governors that sent a letter to president biden about increasing you know electric vehicle proliferation the one piece that seemed to be missing from that was the whole idea that, well, guess what? The current system of distribution actually stops that from happening and we need to open up. And in fact, I can't remember the exact number, but interestingly enough, a lot of states that signed on the letter, Washington was one of those, by the way, had laws in place that actually prevent that distribution from happening. New York with a really big target and Governor Cuomo really wanting to get uh, New York on the map as supporting electric vehicle proliferation as really combating greenhouse gases. One of the states that's closed and, and Tesla has an exemption there, but they're limited to five stores and all those stores are downstate and having originally come from having been born and raised in upstate New York, I would love to see a Rivian store, a Tesla store in Western New York, but you know that's that's not possible under under current state laws. So yes, we need champions. We absolutely need champions. We need governors to recognize uh, the importance of this issue and to get behind legislation. I have to throw a shout out for Governor Polis out of, of Colorado, who really pushed in 2020 to have this law go through to allow EV manufacturers to be able to sell direct. He asked uh, Will Tour from, uh, from the Colorado Energy Office to make this a priority because Governor Polis recognized that if we were going to really increase the number of electric vehicles available in the state, they had to open up the distribution system to new ways of doing distribution. So shout out to him. And, you know, to have other governors recognize this, I will say Governor Gretchen Whitmer, very much uh, supportive of the concept as well. In fact, when there was a bill introduced last year that would have actually restricted Michigan further 
you know, she made it clear she was not in favor of that type of legislation. So getting champions out there, having the governors recognize that if we're doing this as part of a broader climate goal, then we need to open up our methods of distribution. And by the way, this is not just, you know, governors in, in some of the more blue states. I mean, this is also about free markets. In fact, um, Wyoming and New Hampshire, New Hampshire is another great example where those states opened up to direct sales. That wasn't because Tesla went in. That wasn't because Rivian went in. It's because these states recognize, well, wait a minute, why are we artificially constraining the free market? And so they opened up the state to allow this. Now, granted, they put it in protections, so you couldn't have manufacturers unfairly competing against their affiliated franchise dealers. We certainly didn't want to go back there, but recognizing that the Rivians, the Teslas, the Lucids of the world didn't have franchise dealers and weren't unfairly competing with dealers of their own line make, but this was open market competition. Uh, subsequently opened up their states. Yeah, so it sounds like governors, again, are a court champion. I know we have we all have a hard time in this big world thinking that we can have an influence on politicians. But the thing I keep, I keep hearing from Senate staffers is one of the most important things you can do is call your senator. And I think there's a kind of under acknowledgement that if we actually do, do try to put pressure on governors, senators, uh, powerful state politicians that they have the ability to make things happen by, you know, saying, do this for me. You know, this, you know, th- these are the people that if we really pressure them, they can make, uh, make some, some changes. Um, so that's good, great uh, stories and advice. So to close out, you know, at the beginning, we talked a bit about, you know, you focus on the fact that we're still like 2% EV market share in the U S so it's really all the EV producers, EV products against the, the gas powered vehicles and, you know, in Europe, we're seeing a rapid shift due to, to, to regulations, legislation, about 10% EV market share right now growing fast. And that's being spread more or less across the automaker landscape, the auto landscape. You know, the top EVs are sort of the EV versions of top gas models. Do you think the U.S. is going to be end up splitting in a kind of similar way where you're going to have still big dominance of traditional automakers with some EV companies taking maybe 10, 20% of the market? Or do you think the US, partly because of this odd oddity of how cars are sold here and, and the challenges we're facing is going to end up with something more like a, you know, 50% of EV sales in 2030 coming from EV specific companies like Tesla, Rivian, Lucid, Xpeng, uh, NEO, perhaps, you know, these, um, other companies like that. What do you? How do you see this kind of splitting out in the U.S. market evolving? It's a big question, I know, but I know you've thought about it for a decade. So, <laughs> well, I wish I had that crystal ball that could tell you. Um, I could tell you this: the reason Europe is is being so successful, the reason China is so successful on EV proliferation rates, is because the governments in those uh, regions of the world have decided we're going all in on this. They put in policies, they put in laws, not only to ease distribution. Um, because they didn't have restrictive franchise laws, um, but also policies to encourage production of electric vehicles to really move the shift, to really move the needle uh, on EVs. So in Europe, you've got uh, greenhouse gas standards that are incredibly stringent with penalties that are incredibly uh, high for manufacturers that are not going all in on EVs. In the U.S., you see some of that, but it's nowhere close to what Europe has. And in fact, you know, uh, 
in the prior administration, we saw actually a rollback of those standards on the federal level and a challenge to California and their ability to, um, to set their own standards. Now, fortunately, in this administration, we're seeing a reverse of that, um, and, and this is going forward. But again, this is not, this is not about you know, politics. This is not about right versus left. This is about uh, a policy that is good for the United States. This is technology advancement. It's really, you know, something that I'm super passionate about. Um, The last thing we want to see is what is going to become the modern move in transportation and and beyond uh, being ceded to foreign countries, some of which don't really like us a whole lot. So there are national security implications, because if you think about it, everything that's coming down in technology and transportation, connectivity, uh, autonomy. I mean, they're all gateways to bigger pieces of technology. This all boils down to energy and technology. And so autonomy, for example, what is autonomy? It's the gateway to artificial intelligence. Okay. What are electric vehicles and energy storage and energy creation and renewables? It's all the the pathway into uh, energy production and, and use. And that's something the United States has to lead in. So I don't have a crystal ball to tell you about uh, where the EV mix will end up, uh, but I can tell you that the United States needs to get very, very serious about promoting modern transportation technology that starts with the electric platform. Well, thank you so much. Honestly, it's, it's, a, it's a true serious honor to talk with you for an hour. You've you're obviously been a leader in industry for, for 10 years. I'm sure there's way more we could dig into with you, so we have to make a date to re- re- reconvene and uh, find out where things are going. But th- thank you for your perspective, your history, your expertise, uh, your just broad focus on expanding the EV market. Uh, really appreciate it. And of course, everything Ravina is doing to be another big player in this in this market. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Really an honor to have the time with you and, and the ability to speak on these issues of which um, I think you could tell I'm, I'm pretty passionate about. And, and I find all this pretty cool. and. There's, there's a lot of motivation for, for all of us as, as a country to really get behind. Yeah, and I think we, we sort of see a role. We, we speak to a bit of a niche enthusiast audience, but we have to see like, what, what, do, we tell, what do we talk to our people about to, to accelerate change? And uh, I guess just as a closing, do you have a closing elevator pitch for what you say to all these you know, thousands of EV enthusiasts who want to make a difference. They're, in, they're enjoying the revolution, but they want to see what else they can do. Yeah, I just close by, you know, keep, keep, keep it up. Keep up the faith. Um, technology has gotten better and better over time. Uh, the costs have come down. The efficiencies have gone up. Uh, America absolutely has to lead in this space. And uh, when I say America, that includes Americans. Uh, and every one of us that uh, believe in uh, basically what the United States stands for. And this is just one piece of this where we can be technology leaders, we can be educated consumers, uh, and we can be a voice for positive change. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone uh, at Rivian for what you're doing. And listeners, readers, thank you for joining us. Check in next time to get your electric fix. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at
acclaimtechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>